You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. The other thing that's really interesting is, is as big businesses, as as publicly held companies are starting to panic slightly, they realize there's a storm coming. Um, anybody who's in a tech company right now, like even like an Uber, they weren't really around during the last recession. So they're very unprepared for what mm-hmm. they're about to see. As, as are a lot of the web celebs businesses, as are a lot of the business models that that they promote, I think, I think we're about to see that really tested. And the first thing that these publicly held companies are cutting is their ad revenue and their marketing because they know they can make sales without ad revenue and marketing. Everything about that model screws up your deliverability. There's not one thing about that model. I mean, I've got clients who have like tens of thousands of people and 4% open rates. And I know that open rates are not the metric that they used to be, but they're to a point they still are. And it's certainly a good metric to track, to see that's what alerts me to if I'm having a problem. And so, you know, these, these, these Facebook ads to any of that, that live launching, launching nonsense really, really messes with your deliverability. That was Tara Newman, the founder and CEO of the Bold Profit Academy and the host of the podcast, The Bold Money Revolution. She joins me today to discuss more of the undershared truths of running an online business. From why most of us start businesses, to how common growth strategies lead to a lack of resiliency, to how service providers can avoid the mindset of selling themselves, boy do we get into it. This episode will be especially relevant for entrepreneurs and business owners who are wanting to make their businesses work for them and their lives rather than the other way around. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Tara, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, in the green room, we were talking about um, the general state of the world and how it's impacting entrepreneurs and small business owners. And I, I want to tie in definitely to service providers as a special class of, of entrepreneurs, because I think mm-hmm. we're experiencing it in different ways. But one, it's great talking to you again. You had me on your podcast. We'll link in the show notes. And I'm just delighted to talk to you today. I I'm can't be happy. I couldn't be happier to be back here with you, Charlie. Thank you for having me on. Great. Um, so you were mentioning, for context, um, you were mentioning that earlier this year, you were, mm-hmm. you were diagnosed with Lyme, mm-hmm. um, Lyme's disease, and then was the order you got COVID and then, yep. okay, so unpack that a little bit for us because this health cycle that many of us are experiencing is, is one of the things we need to put on the deck. Yeah, sure. Uh, especially because I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, I think the missing narrative in entrepreneurship is that so many of us have come to entrepreneurship at a necessity. Mm-hmm. 
right? Especially women. I work with a lot of women, but I know men too. And, you know, there, there's this component of either childcare or stressful work environment making you sick, or you have chronic illness and there's not really an inclusive environment for you to be in. And so I started my business. I I was had chronic illness, but didn't really know what it was. It was just burnout, general burnout, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was... And I've been feeling that way for a very long time, probably about 12 years when I was diagnosed with Lyme. They have tested me for everything else, but they had never tested me for Lyme. And now I'm wondering, could I have possibly had this for so long, right? Um, It definitely wasn't a new infection. And we were working on getting that cleared up when at the end of the year, like so many people, when Omicron came out, I wound up with COVID. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't know and I, I think this is kind of cute in a not cute way, but like these are viruses, they're bugs, and they like to they like to kind of hang out together and protect each other, mm-hmm. is how my doctor explained it to me. So like the Lyme bug con- connected with like the COVID bug, and then they were like trying to stop each other from being captured, so to speak, and then that activated reactivated my Epstein Barr. So I wound up with Lyme, COVID and Epstein-Barr, which is really a wild concoction of things to have. Uh, COVID hit me in the chest. I wound up with, you know, uh, asthma, hard to breathe, very winded. I went back and listened to a podcast I recorded in April, and I was like, wow. Like, I really was, I sounded like I was gasping for air on this podcast episode. And so it's really just been this whole very long process of trying to figure out how to heal from something that is very new, long COVID. They don't understand it. They don't know really what to do about it. Acupuncture has been my, has been my thing. Um, mm-hmm. This is not medical advice, but I'm just saying that I was really shocked when they recommended acupuncture and it has actually been working. So also making the time for two to three acupuncture appointments a week on top of having kids and all the other things. And all the other things, indeed. Um, When we first went into the pandemic cycle, one of the things that I was talking a lot about, about anywhere people would let me talk about it, was the fact that covid created a new project for many of us, at least one project. And in our world, a project is anything that takes time, energy, and attention. Mm. And for many people, it created three projects. It created one, the project of adjusting their career and their business Mm -hmm. for this new world of work. That's one. Two, if you have kids or if you're a caretaker, it adjusts all of the things around that. Mm -hmm. And those two Don't even address whether or not you got sick. If you actually got COVID, it introduced this third one of how to deal with it. Uh And both of us as advisors work with companies and help them become more resilient and more future ready. And what I was seeing, I'm sure you were seeing it at the time, is that COVID and the pandemic cycle introduced these new layers that we hadn't had to consider before all at once. Um, and so it's kind of like, we never in a business want to be in a single point of failure, right? Where one thing can take it out, but COVID touched so many different aspects for small business owners between their family life, between their work life, between their health, 
that we started seeing people get on a real struggle with that. And so as you were talking about that, you know, it's like your COVID cycle or your Lyme disease cycle colluded with, the, with, with you know, your Lyme disease and your Epstein-Barr to create this long one quarter, two quarter, probably three quarter project that sits on top mm-hmm. of everything else you had going on. Yeah, that's, that's a real a brilliant way to look at it. You're right. Um, and so first off, big love. You know, the the other thing is like while I've Angela and I have fortunately not gotten COVID yet, this year there's been a lot of deaths in the family between her grandfather, my dad, and her uncle last week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just been one of those things that again has introduced these new factors that okay, like one death in the family. You can deal with once a quarter, you know, three and two quarters on top of all the travel and things related to that. It starts to press against those readiness factors that we might look at. Yeah, it starts um, to eat into that, that like energetic margin that those, those reserves that you have. Reserves, energetic reserves, emotional reserves, social Mm-hmm. Reserves, financial, financial, mental, right? mm-hmm. all the reserves, you know, get mm-hmm. sort of tied up in this sort of process. And I know you and I, because of people in our academy, and I know you have, um, you have an academy as well. You're probably seeing similar people or it's like, you know what, what's going on. And, you know, we have to think about the pandemic. And I was also talking at the time, it's like pandemics are like two to five year cycles. Like this mm-hmm. is not spread the curve and then we go back six months. No, no, no. This is going to be a while and people didn't want to hear it at the time. Right. But I'm like, actually, it's really, I was saying it from a place of support and forecasting out. And it's like, we have to re-engineer our businesses in our lives to be able to last this long. Because if you just think it's going to be three months and it's three years, it's going to stress a lot of different reserves and push you in different places. So I'm a history buff mm-hmm. and I'm a money nerd. And so that, that kind of uh, comes together in weird ways, but I was recently reading a really great book about the great depression. Mm-hmm. That was 10 years. By the time they got from the crash to where they were kind of starting to feel solid on their footing again, there were, there were peaks, there were valleys over that 10 years, but this, was something that was, and and then, and then the trauma of it then carried on for generations. So yeah, this is going to be a while. It's going to be a minute. It's going to be a minute. So I say that for anyone who is dealing with pandemic fatigue or maybe some of those things we talked about didn't hit you, but you just noticed that there's a general background of that. Like it's a real thing. It's not just you. Um, and we can sort of shift into thinking about what to do about it, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what are some ways to adjust it? So, um, if you accept it, if you expect it and, and you, accept it. Yeah. If you accept it, if you accept that this is just where we are and you don't try and bypass it, we can have conversations about how to, your word is flourish. My word is thrive through these times, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it's, it's always going to be negative, hard, bad, whatever, you know, it's, it's now, how do we adapt? But you know, you can't adapt. You can't change that behavior until you accept that you're here. Until you accept that you're here and you might be here for a while. Mm -hmm. And 
regardless of what you might be seeing in the in the socials, like <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> right? It is They're, not your fault. And I want to pause because there are plenty of folks who come from wealth and different business spheres. Like I love that you started with the fact that small business folks oftentimes and entrepreneurs often aren't hmm, they're starting it out of a necessity of some some kind or the other. It's not the typical case, although you'll read about it in the books where someone has that, you know, multiple six-figure job, has an idea, starts saving up money for two years and comes out and has a nest egg of fifty to seventy thousand dollars. So like that's in my experience, the outlier case. Um and it's definitely been the case during the pandemic where people were like, I, I got to do something, so I'm going to do this, or during every other recession. But it's interesting because PF, we started PF during the Great Recession in 2008, right? And so when this one came around, I'm like, oh, okay, we, we've done this before, right? But a lot of businesses start during these cycles. Um, so I'm saying this because there is a thread of business advisors and folks commenting on business that are I've seen blaming a lot of small businesses like you should have been more prepared for this you should have had x or maybe you shouldn't have started your business at this time and things like that and it's like well that's coming from a position that doesn't work for a lot of women it doesn't work for a lot of bipoc bipoc it doesn't work for a lot of people with disabilities so glad you started there it's not your fault if you didn't start flush and ready for a five years, you know, recession cycle. You know, I, w- there's so much misinformation on the internet and on social media when it comes to small business ownership. And it's so harmful. That is a podcast for another day, Charlie. <laughs> um, and it might need to be on mine where I can really get heated and, and, and cut, do some cussing. Um, or you can do it here. That's all. Okay. We'll, put, <laughs> we'll put it out there for work. On the uh, because we are just creating so much harm in that space around some of these topics. And what I, I want to say is you have to consider how you're being manipulated and brainwashed. I was reading an interesting book on focus and it was, they were talking about some of the research that those folks did over at the social dilemma Tristan, I can't remember his, his, the other person's name, and and how we're using operant conditioning, reward and punishment cycles, to gamify like the most important decisions and and aspects of our lives that should not be gamified by red dots, likes, followers, or um you know, emojis or comments or, or, or something like that. And it's really messing people. It's really messing people up and it's really messing business owners up because here's the thing that I realized. If you start to, there's, if you start to condition your reward system to seek likes, followers, hearts, comments, that is not what is supposed to be rewarding to a business owner. Income, being able to pay yourself, Being able to put food on your table is what is meant to be rewarding to entrepreneurs and business owners. And that's just like one of the ways that, that the space is, is kind of really messing with people's heads. Not to mention the fact that 
you're constantly going on this device that tells you you stink and it's your fault and you're broken. It's horrible. And I, I, I have yet to, I've, 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 I'm trying to reckon <laughs> my relationship with it because it does do good things, right? Like you and I probably wouldn't have connected if it wasn't for social media in some form or fashion or context or, or, or something like that. And there's so many wonderful people in my lives, my life for those reasons. But, you know, as business owners, especially going through uncertain times, times that are exhausting, times that need your focus and intention on what really matters and the important things, the important projects in your life. It's, it's, it's hugely distracting from your, from your mission and your purpose. Yeah. I love it. You know, um, my colleague Cal in the book, deep work wrote about the, any benefit principle that we use when it comes to social media and the fallacy that he writes about it is we think, well, it's got some benefit. It's got some benefit. So I should continue to use it um, because there's a little bit there. And when you think about it, like it might be, I'm going to stretch it or maybe he said, it and I just misremembered it. it might be that taking a little bit of poison, like it harms you, but it might have some benefit. Like it might make you happy in a moment. Well, that little happiness is not really the compelling benefit to keep using that poison. Like if we were sitting back and thinking about what was good for us, maybe we would see that that little benefit may not be worth it, right? Now, I'm not going to go as far as digital minimalism as Cal has gone, but I think we do need to be asking this question of um, how does it benefit it, but really does the benefit really outweigh the harm? Because for me, people come as like, well, I want to build up my, especially social media following. I'll get on the stump. Y'all on this podcast have heard me stump about this, especially if you're in an academy. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do that for? It's like, well... Because I want to get exposure. What do you want to get exposure for? Because I want to get leads. Well, what do you want to get leads for? So I can make sales. And like, so if we can do all of that sell stuff without all that, especially for service-based businesses, because service-based businesses can thrive in low traffic environments. This is my, this is my, yeah. Right. And so you don't need, if you structure your business well and your price is right and you're working with the right people, most small business owners might need between 10 and 20 you know, either new clients or new leads, depending upon what the structure of that business is. Yeah. You don't need a massive following to that. Yeah. I, you know, so I was just talking, this is such a, this is such a good topic to talk about because let's, that isn't this a, a form of business resiliency, mm -hmm. right? So when we see people who are spending all of their time, so the, the online business the traditional online business model has been billed as um, low cost to entry and um, I'm like, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? But like um, uh, working less, earning more, hmm, yeah. right? Like, like easy, ease, ease, yeah, right? Four hour work week. Yeah, right. Not to beat up on Tim. There's a lot of, there's a lot of actual goodness in there, but what that book has done has made us think that. Correct. And so here's the truth. The truth is, is the online business model is the most costly thing I have ever seen in my life in business. And let me, I'm going to give you some data. So Hit me. there's um, a woman who, and I see them do this all the time. They do like these, here's the debrief of my, my quarter, my year. She's not this one. I'm not even, I'm not naming names, but like, this is the thing. And I go through the debriefs 
with my financial hat on. <laughs> and I start I doing the math. Yep. <laughs> and so this one woman, I'm pulling out her expenses and I'm she's on trend. She's, I don't know, a couple million dollar business. And she's on trend for $1.8 million in expenses. And I pull up my husband's P&L, who owns a manufacturing business in a very high cost of living area, and his expenses are less. I think, I feel like we need to pause and, and just like let that sink in for a hot second. She's overspending on team in her, in her debrief. She's overspending on experts who she thinks know have the, the secret sauce of some sort and ads. Oh, let's get on that here in a second. And ads, right. Mm -hmm. And what she actually probably took home, she could have done in half the time, maybe less by charging more building Mm -hmm. relationships. But here's the thing. You actually have to have expertise So when on, I go to her website and it says helping coaches build successful coaching businesses and her debrief is that she spent $1.8 million is would spend $1.8 million to make like two something. Yeah. I didn't even count in taxes. She took Mm. home nothing. Yeah. But she bought the million dollar home in the Porsche. <laughs> I, I our audience either needs to needs to see the facial expressions we're making or imagining it because this is um and this and is I, why I can't read those reports. And this is also why anyone that starts talking to me about revenue and doing it as like the build in public, I'm gonna show you the number side of things. And I'm like so like if we're paying attention, yes, your gross revenue is high. Um, but what's underneath that, and especially if it's like you know, I'm, I'm, this is my audience. I'm showing the audience how to build a business model that I have, and seventy percent of my revenue is coming from teaching that my, that audience how to build the business model that I have. That sort of faux Ponzi scheme thing going on. I'm like, if you extract away that one line item, you have no business. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, and that's, I think, um, well, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday because 2014, 2015, if y'all weren't around for the Facebook advertising days of 2014, 2015, it You're was good. complete. It was good. I am mad that I did not spend more. Let's put it that way, right? Um, I'm mad that I did not like 10x my spend at that time because we would be in a different place, right? Um, Because everything was in a different place there. But after that, it got incredibly brutal. Um, Not just for me, for a lot of different folks as, you know, the law of shitty click-through went through and all that sort of whatnot. And so there are a lot where it's like, well, do social media advertising. It's like, well, if someone can't walk you through ROAS, and they can't walk you through total cost and they're not telling you the cost of their service plus the cost of your ad spend plus the cost of everything else put in there. What you're going to end up doing is spending 10 grand 
to maybe make a grand? I got some facts. Hit me. Okay. Um, I, I actually haven't really ever run ads. Like I might've boosted a post at one point, but like I haven't ever really run ads. Um, I'm also a big believer that you can be a millionaire without having a million dollar business. As a matter of fact, I know you can be a millionaire without having a million dollar business. So we should really all be checking in on not what the revenue goal is, but what do we want to be paying ourselves? What Mm -hmm. do we want to be profiting Mm-hmm. and reverse engineering the business for that. And it will not usually require you to, to always run ads. Maybe it will. Um, however, 88% of ad clicks are fraudulent. Like clickbait, click farms, whatever, you know, bots, what, what have you. Um, there is no regulation for digital advertising, So Zucks does not have to stand by his product. He doesn't have to prove anything. They have wild amounts of um, uh, class action lawsuits on these uh, Facebook ads. And when you look at what I find, what I'm finding very interesting right now, so the NASDAQ has pretty much plummeted to the state of the dot-com bust. Mm Mm-hmm right? In 2000, these tech companies are really, really struggling right now. And I'm watching the VCs. They're on, they're almost becoming untouchable because they don't want to have anything to do with anybody who's got ad revenue associated with it. These are venture capitalists who don't want to anymore lend money to companies relying on ad revenue. So maybe we should take a page out of their book and start to question that ourselves they also don't want anything to do with them because they don't want to be the next Hulu documentary, right? Because these nope. businesses are really run by a bunch of mendacious sociopaths. So why do we want to be giving them our money? I won't give Zucks money. I try not to. I won't. Sometimes I'm like, I get curious and I'm like, what if I just tested it? And then I'm like, mm. I really, really struggle with his ethics and, and with the ethics of the whole, the whole thing. Um, and then what I found also interesting is I there's this venture capitalist company that started out during the recession and they've been really successful and they're, they're, um, one of their boundaries is they don't touch these companies. Mm-hmm. They want nothing to do with the tech companies that are requiring ad revenue for revenue. They want to be going and supporting co- tech companies that are really actually producing some kind of value added technology. And I think the other thing that's really interesting is, is as big businesses, as, as publicly held companies are starting to panic slightly, they realize there's a storm coming. Um, anybody who's in a tech company right now, like even like an Uber, they weren't really around during the last recession. So they're very unprepared for what mm-hmm. they're about to see. As as are a lot of the web celebs businesses, as are a lot of the business models that that they promote. I think I think we're about to see that really tested. And the first thing that these publicly held companies are cutting is their ad revenue and their marketing, because they know they can make sales without ad revenue and marketing. What I want to add to the mix here. Is that yes, absolutely. I think there's been a lot of overpromising when it comes, especially to social media advertising. 
um, all advertising, but we're, we're picking out that, <laughs> that particular um, land because over the last decade, that's where a lot of money has flown. Um, where I am now, I'm going to set aside the ethics of Zuckerberg and Facebook and things like that. That's a somewhat separate conversation that we can have in a second, but I'm just going to talk about the economics of it. Mm-hmm. Right. My thing is just know the numbers, right? Know your numbers, test it, walk all the way through the funnel, right? And make sure, yes, you need to give, you know, you need to give these things 30 to 45 days to validate and check out and things like that. Those are all true because your business has a lead cycle. It has a sales cycle, regardless of whether you got ads. I think what we, to your point, what we need to be thinking about for businesses that we want to be enduring is when your whole business model is built on getting a fast sell in a day or two or three, right? And that's what you optimize around. You end up with these very top, top of the funnel or top of the business model heavy things that, that are actually not nearly as resilient as you think. Because all it takes, and we've seen this time and time again, all it takes is a thing like Ukraine to pop up, right? World at ever, everyone's attention goes there. Guess where they're guess where it's not in these products that you've used this particular channel to use. And so, um, you know, businesses, when we start thinking about resiliency, mm-hmm. like the number that you want to avoid is one, one red, one revenue channel, one, only one acquisition method, only one sort of segment. And that, that will get me in trouble. I know because a lot of people just focus on one segment, but um, you have to be careful about that because one introduces the the risk of um, just that that one thing not working and produces that bottleneck. And if that's the only thing you got, all of a sudden you don't have very much. Um, but there is a lot to be talked about when it comes to, especially Meta right now. Um, I'm meta slash Facebook, I've had more problems with and people have pushed me on this. Like, what is it about Facebook that you're especially um, concerned about, but you don't apply the same sort of brush for Twitter or Pinterest or Google in a way, right? Mm -hmm. We know more about Facebook. I get more concerned when one platform or one person has the attention of like half the planet. That concerns me, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But also we have more direct evidence of some of what they've done Mm-hmm. as opposed to Twitter and some of the smaller guys. And so that's the argument sometimes level against me. It's like, they're doing the same thing. They just hadn't gotten caught yet. Perhaps, <laughs> right? Um, 88% though, 88% are fraudulent clicks. Yeah, I can also send you the study if you want. Yeah. And the backup um, data on that. that up in the show notes. So we could find um, it. Yeah, we actually did a list call last year. And about 25,000 email addresses came off that list. Yeah. I don't know if they were all fraudulent, but it was when we look back, it was largely ones that had been acquired through social media advertising, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And it's like, they're not actually doing much here except for costing us money. And they're not really re- like even opening emails and things like that. So um, I can say both from us, but also from across our client portfolios, we've seen the downstream effects of, of, Maybe not 88%, but more um, more chum in the water. Let's put it that way. So in terms of building a business that has resiliency and, or like I like to call it easy on my energy, 
Mm-hmm. I really need a business that's easy on my energy. I need an, a business that when I have gas in the tank, I know what levers I can pull and I can pull them quickly. I can pull them hard. I could pull them a lot. Like, right. Like on the day that, and it's literally, literally sometimes day by day, mm-hmm. like I feel good today. So I'm going to sit down and focus for four hours that I'm going to do all the things that I know work. And I'm going to do a lot of it. Because the next day I might wake up and I might need to be half speed or I might need to be no speed, but I know that I, I did the things that, that day before. And so a huge part of my strategy that's easy on my energy is email. Mm-hmm. That for me is the most effective, most important sales tool I have. And here's the problem with while we're talking about social media and social media influencers who think they're business advisors and coaches here's one of the, the big problems is they don't teach sales process. First of all, they teach marketing and they make you think that that's actually business knowledge. It's not, um, they teach sales tools. So reels, Instagram, Facebook, a live, a webinar, those are all sales tools, but where do they fit in your process? So in the Bold Profit Academy, we're very framework heavy because I'm Mm going to give you the framework in the process. You pick your tools. Mm -hmm. You pick the tools that you like. If you really enjoy reels and that's working for you and your target market, amazing. That would not work for me, my energy, my target market. It wouldn't. So I I don't do them. I don't put effort or energy into doing them. I might play around with them once, but that's not where I'm spending my time and my energy and my effort. And so people don't understand how any of this actually works. They understand like these disjointed, these disjointed tactics, right? But email, and they think of email as as marketing. I think of email as sales. So Mm -hmm. marketing is when you talk to somebody one to many, you're, Mm -hmm. you're kind of broadcasting. Mm -hmm. Um, and sales is more of a one-to-one. It's a conversation. A lead does not become a prospect, a potential buyer until there's a conversation. And if you're constantly broadcasting, how are you ever inviting somebody into a conversation? However, what I've noticed because email is my, my jam and I'm a very reluctant deliverability expert now, um, (laughs) What I've been finding is that any of my clients that have done the Rube Goldberg online business shenanigan model, where it's Facebook ads to email, then you send them to a Facebook group, and now you're dancing around in the Facebook group with free people until you're exhausted, and then Mm -hmm. you you send them Mm -hmm. to a webinar, their deliverability is screwed Everything about that model screws up your deliverability. There's not one thing about that model. I mean, I've got clients who have like tens of thousands of people and 4% open rates. And I know that open rates are not the metric that they used to be, but they're to a point they still are. And it's certainly a good metric to track, to see that's what alerts me to if I'm having a problem. And so, you know, these, these, these Facebook ads to any of that, that live launching, launching nonsense really, really messes with your deliverability. 
Misses with your deliverability. Um, I'm on the team building side, just as you are. It also messes with your readiness and capacity because it turns out it takes a lot, even with great tech stacks, it takes a lot of energy to do those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so the common response then goes back to the model that we were talking about from the person whose report that you saw to do that model, you have to hire people because you hire people. That model has to work even harder, right? If it doesn't work harder then you're on the, you know, you're on the, uh, debt on your, on your balance sheet side of things. Mm-hmm. And if it does like it accelerates and creates as like, Oh, that worked. Let's do it again. Do it, do it bigger. Right. And so you scale until it doesn't, and then it becomes a thing. So I think um, this is where I love um, what is the name of his book? Company of One, Paul Jones. Yes. Have it. Right. Yes. She's showing the picture of, of a company one. We'll link up to his show notes. Um, I think, you know, the, the great thing about that book and the sort of the jam that we're talking about here is whether you want to talk about it as just questioning the limits of growth or tra- and questioning the cost of growth. It is really saying like, look, there are different business models and one of the best things to sort of play out business scenarios, let's call it scenarios so we don't get too technical. One of the to play out is what does a tight essentialist scenario look like for you? Mm-hmm. Right. Why? When we look at the common earning in the United States, and granted, I'm I'm all about people making as much money as they can. I'm not a, I'm not one of those people that are, are going to go there. But I'm saying there's a certain degree to which um, you make a band of revenue, and it's actually remarkable and can live set you up for a really thriving life um, that doesn't require all this extra build. Yeah. So I'm a profit first certified consultant. Um, profit mm-hmm. first really did a lot of good for my business. And then to be in integrity with Mike's work, I went and got certified and licensed to use his work and his model and to teach it as my own. And I think one of the biggest benefits to having profit first as a framework or as a, as a method when I use it is I use it to help you reverse engineer where you need to be because we don't understand People, business owners don't understand how your personal finances and your business finances need to tie together. Mm-hmm. And you can't have one without the other. There, there, There's a harmony there that needs to be created. This is not Lambo lifestyle. This is not Learjets. This is not first class tickets all the time, whatever. You know, there are very specific decisions that you could be making in your personal life that will really make your business way easier to run. And there are decisions that you could be making in your business that will make your life, you know, a a much better life and lifestyle. And one of the things that, you know, I focus on is not this million dollar business, but if you are a reputable, credible expert, and you have left your nine to five at a necessity at one point, there's a really good chance that if you went back into that nine to five job, you'd be making six figures. Mm -hmm. You'd be making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, Mm -hmm. for absolutely sure. Especially if I'm, you know, I'm 46. So, you know, and I, and I know a lot of folks who, who left, um, their careers and that's what they were making when they left. 
And, and maybe there's some trade-off that you want to make there. Maybe there's some wiggle room, but life costs money. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. So I rather focus people on how do you get to a six-figure paycheck than, you, than getting to a, a million-dollar business. And the reality is, is 200, 250,000 in revenue as yep. per profit first will bring you in $100,000 in in your paycheck. Now, I I think, you know, you might want a little more than that, depending on what your life is like for resiliency purposes, right? Charlie, like you and I were just talking about, you just had some deaths in the family. You need to, you need to take some unexpected time off. See, you know, using your profit, saving your profit for, to cover times like that, to cover those unexpected or even expected times off is, is really important. So yeah, you might need a little more than that 250 in revenue, but let's at least get you there. Let's get you paying yourself universal basic income, (laughs) right? Like even a, a few thousand dollars a month so that your nervous system starts to calm down. You start to see that, yes, you do have money coming in. You can do this. And then what's possible for you after that? And I get challenged all the time by um, people in the online business community when I talk about $250,000 and they're like, well, are you, do you have limited thinking? Are you, are these limiting beliefs? I said, no, I have math. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, I have math and I can show you how on $250,000 in revenue, you could actually become a millionaire over time. And that's resiliency. It's resiliency to take your profit and start to invest it into other areas that will generate income for you that's not earned income. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole different way we can do the math here where you take the income that you need to live the life that you want to. That gives you a certain baseline. You multiply that by 1.3. That means that's what your business needs to pay you to hit that baseline. Right. We can start stacking up from there. And then we can start thinking, what are the costs to run the business? We add that in there, so on and so forth. And you can build your entire business model based upon those numbers. Mm-hmm. And if that works, it's a different way of getting to profit first, but it's the same sort of thing. It's like, what is your what are your core needs? Let's build up from there. But do you have that number pegged? And if you go below that number, then you know, okay, if I go below, let's just say it's 10, because math, right? Let's make it easy. If your business stops paying you 10 then either you've needed to change your lifestyle or you've needed to change your funding sources or you've had to make some change, right? Or you're starting to go into debt. It just gives you that number. Now you can make 20 and the business pay you 20. Trick is don't increase your lifestyle expenses just because you're making that, right? So there's different games like that. But the other side of it, and we see this all the time, is that there, and I haven't, I need to sit down and write about this, but there's like 250, 250,000, 300,000, um, gross revenue speed bump that happens, mm-hmm. right? That that's about the limit that a one person in mm-hmm. what I call the solo plus model, like mm-hmm. a VA or, you know, mm-hmm. one person can take that business before you have to really start investing in team and all those sort of whatnot. You have to change the um, distribution channels that you sell and you have to change audience size. You have to change a lot to really go to pass that speed bump. And you can get this really weird place between 300 
and let's just call it 650, 700,000 for a lot of businesses where it's tricky to break through that messy middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of us can say, hey, with the broader thing going on in my life right now, maybe I've got, you know, COVID, maybe I just want to chill for a little bit. Maybe my nervous system has been whatever. Do you really need to break through that messy middle? Mm-hmm. Right. Or is if your business is set up for you to thrive, is that the level that really sets that up? And you can do this enduringly. You can do this without stress. You can do a lot of different things. Now, granted, whenever you talk to the quote unquote big business people, or whenever you talk to the startup world, or whenever you talk to all those kind of whatnot, your business is going to seem insignificant. But what you have to remember is don't look at the size of people's businesses. Look at the quality of their lifestyle. Yes. Yep. Because when you, I always say, go back to the original intent for why you decided to do this, especially, you know, for those who have about 80 and just for 87% of my audience did have a traditional nine to five before they started a business. So that is a very common path to take that, you know, they had some kind of traditional role. And when they were leaving, they, right, they're not, they're not well, they're stressed. So they want personal freedom. They want more time with their family. They want more time for their health. They want more time to make lifestyle changes, a better quality of life. They want to do work that is meaningful and makes an impact or a contribution to the world using their skills and their strengths. And they want to replace their their nine to five income. But what winds up happening very quickly is the noise comes in. Mm right? And all of a sudden they're chasing this fictitious ego driven revenue for revenue sake number. And they're sacrificing one, the personal freedom, but they're also sacrificing the meaningful work that they meant to do because you cannot deliver quality and meaningful work when you are chasing this outrageous revenue goal. Things are just moving too quickly. Things are rupturing and breaking. You're disappointing customers and clients, which will then actually destroy your profitability, right? So so this whole model is just such the antithesis of a healthy, sustainable, resilient business. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that I sort of floated that I want to make sure that we touch on before we start wrapping up is, you know, we have been Regardless of whether we've said it directly, I think part of our anchoring has been on service-based businesses, mm-hmm. right? And the important difference is, is when you sell a product and the what people are buying is a product that doesn't have a human and the human's reality attached to it, then there are different dynamics of that. But as a service provider of any type, your time, energy, and attention, your emotional bandwidth um, is really what's for sale. And throughout times like these, it's also super taxed, right? Interacting with people, the emotional labor of working with people. So there are different dimensions when we talk about resiliency when it comes to service-based businesses. Um, and so I know you have some thoughts on that, but I, but since I primed that, what's how is this specifically relevant to service-based business owners? So, you know, I think that, and I've certainly found figured this out, over the last few years myself, right? Like I uh, distinctly March, 2020, I thought I had a sustainable business and I didn't, 
I was making really good money, multiple, multiple six figures. Um, and then every, I don't know, I, I went into such a state of anxiety and, and trauma. Like I was so frozen. I could barely take one step in front of the other in, in those early days of the pandemic. Right. And at the same time, I joke around and I'm always like, you know, I'm a wartime leader. I'm good in crisis. I know yep. you were in the military, right? Yeah, um, we'll link to wartime CEO, peacetime CEO, so you know what we're talking about here. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 a I'm a wartime leader, and so there was a part of me that was like, no, this is go time. This is when you stand up and you start to to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, this is not sustainable, right? And and so what it came down to for me over the last two years was boundaries, boundaries, Mm -hmm. boundaries, boundaries, and a lot of inner work and a lot of, you know, mucking through the, the mud and the grit and the grime of your stuff. And why are you doing what you're doing? And, you know, we really start to conflate the entity of the business with your identity and entrepreneurship today is, bizarrely identity driven, which is why we have some of the problems that we do have. And, you know, for me, I had to, I actually think of my business as a, as a product-based business. Mm-hmm. I, I just think of what I offer, whether I know it's a service, but I think of it as a product. Mm-hmm. I tell myself it's a product. It's not me. It like, I, I really do the best I can to divorce. You're not buying me. Right. Like, you know, our friend Jaquette Timmons would have something to say about that. And she's got a lot Mm -hmm. to say about, you know, the whole concept of charging your worth. And, and she's um, very vocal about that. And so I really try and, and, and take that, that, that off of me and to create the boundaries and say, okay, what is the job, job speed on theory? What is the job my folks need done? Mm -hmm. What is the quickest most expedient, most fun way to get that done without sacrificing my soul. Nobody is entitled to me as a human being. Mm-hmm. They're, they're entitled to my intellectual, you know, property when they pay for it. They, but, but me, that's, you can't, that's, and we do a lot of that in the online space where it's like access driven, you know, access to you and and it's weird. So I don't, I try not to do that. I get it. I get it. I mean, sometimes the way I think about it is I sell experiences and outcomes. Yep. Experiences. Yep. Uh, Outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out you, I need to be sometimes a lot of times, most of the times and like principally involved in co-creating that experience. But what I'm co-creating with a client is not just me. Right. It's something right. different. Right. Um, and that's how it works. And those experiences deliver certain outcomes. If they don't, then inevitably, if you're in the line of business that you and I are in, inevitably it's going to come up. Right. Um, and so and there's a ahead. lot of creative um, ways to leverage, you know, you having to be there versus not having to be there. Um, to, to have a high touch experience without having a high time experience. 
And that was really something that I've had to work on over the last two years, just because I couldn't do it anymore. And I had to go, okay, how do I work once, get this result, dial it in and, and work many times. And so we have curriculum in the academy that supports the community and the live teaching that we do. Um, so we can direct people. We do shift. It's not set in stone. We have quarterly curriculum reviews from behind the scenes. Um, we survey the members on a quarterly basis to ensure that our learning objectives are in alignment with what they want to do. But, and, and so there's a lot of like behind the scenes work, but in terms of like me having to hold space for someone, I just couldn't have the same conversation over, over and over again anymore. <laughs> yeah. It, it just didn't make sense. And it didn't make financial sense for the person who was paying me for my one-on-one time when I was able to create, you know, the same outcome in, in a, in a more group experience And so for me, the Bold Profit Academy, it was an answer to a couple of things. It was an answer to how do I get something going that's more sustainable, but doesn't take out the, the, the high touch, the one-on-one pieces that I really enjoy the depth work that, that service providers enjoy doing, seeing and witnessing that transformation in your client but also, how do I democratize business education for women? Because the same program that I run or a similar program to me can cost somebody $27,000. And for me, it's in my program, it's 6000 And that's intentionally done because I actually know what I'm doing with my money. And I'm mm-hmm. profitable. And I know how to run a business. And I can share that profitability back with the people who work with me. Mm-hmm. You know, and how do I you know, create something where, where they, they get, they, where they get really great results and outcomes. How do we slice this down to just like the few things that they really need to be doing on a habitual, consistent, regular, but it's not that complicated when you boil it down. So many, you know, my next book is on team habits. Um, and, the recurring refrain as, as we're going through the book is just reminding the reader, like this is not specific, like not hard per se, like the, the concept and the practice one time is not hard. What becomes difficult is being consistent with it and being consistent long enough that you see the, um, exponential or remarkable returns that you have from that consistency of team of habits done as a team together. Right. Same sort of thing. So much of business um, is just comes down to the simple things that work. Like I used to say, and I still do, I just haven't been in a place where I've said it's like, you know, there's sort of two rules in business and they're pretty simple. Do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Yep. Um, now, what works for you, what works for your business, what works for your audience, that's the trick. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but if you don't know what's working, you don't know what to do more of and less of. And you might find that you're doing a whole lot of stuff that's not actually getting you the outcome that you, your client, your customer, or your community or family really, really are looking for. Yeah. Um, so based upon what we discussed today and being the guest on today's show, what would you 
invite or challenge our listeners to do based upon, again, what we've discussed today? Mm, So I would really love to see everyone get honest with their, with their personal goals for having a business and use that as a, as a boundary for what you're consuming because I'm convinced we're rotting our brains. I love it. I love it. Tara, thanks so much for joining, um, joining us today. And that's a great way to leave the show. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Okay. So you heard it from Tara and we talk about this in start finishing. We talk about I, A, B, C, D, intentions, awareness, boundaries, courage, and discipline. Throughout today's episode, we've talked about intention, we've talked about awareness, we've talked about boundaries, but I just wanted to slide in at the end. It takes courage to build your business and life based upon your plan and what works for you. So as you're thinking about this, what do you need to get intentional about? What do you need to get aware about? And what do you need to have the courage to do what works for you? Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.